0: welcome to the PA books podcast PA books is a production of PCN the Pennsylvania cable network this program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people history sports business nature and politics we hope you enjoy this podcast This week on P.A. Books, Jennifer Sopko, author of Idlewild.
1: Jennifer Sopko, author of Idlewild, History and Memories of Pennsylvania's Oldest Amusement Park. Are you an amusement park fan?
0: I am now, for sure. <laughs>
1: you weren't before you picked this topic?
0: Um, generally, uh, I actually grew up um, in White Oak and Sport area. I went to McKeesport High School, McKeesport School District, and went to Kennywood for my school picnics. So, I rarely went to Idlewild. so this uh, diving into this topic was, was definitely different for me, but very enjoyable. So... Now that I got to learn about Idlewild, I'm looking at all the other Pennsylvania amusement parks, all the other amusement parks across the country. So I've definitely become more a bigger amusement park fan now after researching Idlewild.
1: Had you been to Idlewild before you wrote the book?
0: A few times with friends, with cousins, but not as much as Kenny Wood.
1: What was it about Idlewild that made you want to write that as your first book in this series?
0: Well, this is actually my second book for the History Press. Um, I'll have to rewind back to about 2010, 2011. Um, The History Press got in touch with me. They were looking for somebody to do a Westmoreland County-based title. And we looked at some of the things that I had already written. Um, Since 2003, I've been a freelance writer for the Latrobe Bulletin. Um, I started in my senior year at St. Vincent College in La Trobe and uh, I primarily covered um, Legioner Council meetings, Borough Council meetings, Township Supervisor meetings, so local government and then I started getting into doing historical features. I also did some articles for the Westmoreland County Historical Society's magazine, Westmoreland History. So, when I talked to my editor at the History Press about um, some ideas on, on a book we could do. Uh, we thought Year would be the perfect subject. Uh, we could build the book around uh, the articles that I had previously written and I could uh, add some more little vignettes, little historical stories around that. So that came out in 2013. And then the next year, uh, yeah, it, it would have been about the summer of 2014. I started thinking, what's the next topic? What's the next topic? I had a few ideas that my editor thought were maybe a little bit too niche-market, a little bit too obscure. Um, so I pulled out everything that I had written uh, for the uh, for the newspapers, for the Historical Society. And we centered on the very first historical article I ever did. And that was on Idaho Park. So it came out in Westmoreland history in spring or summer of 2004. And The History Press had pretty good success with other amusement park titles, and my editor thought it would be uh, a great topic to do a book on. And the more I thought about it, um, I had worked with Jeff Croucher when I did um, my article for the Historical Society. He was the park's archivist at the time. And he, shortly after, he put out um, a book with Arcadia, Uh, Images America on Idlewild Park so but that that came out in 2004 I believe so it had been quite a while since there was any kind of book done on Idlewild Park and I thought um, I could really go the distance with it I wanted to tap as many sources as I could find as many pictures unpublished pictures never before seen pictures as I possibly could talk to as many people as I could find uh, former owners of the park, former employees, people around the valley, local historians, um, and I thought I could just uh, go crazy with it. And I, I can't believe it, and I'm very appreciative of the History Press for letting me write 300 pages on Idlewild and put so many pictures in. So I just, the more the more I learned about Idlewild, the more value I, I saw in it. It, to me, it really is a regional treasure, a state treasure, a national treasure. It's a it's a very unique amusement park given its its background.
1: And is Latrobe and not Latrobe?
0: That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Which I had to get used to. Yes, Latrobe.
1: Oh, you said it the mm-hmm. other way b- yes. previously. <laughs> so an amusement park has an archivist?
0: Uh, yes. Um Jeff Croucher. Um I mean what does an
1: archivist I, do for an amusement park?
0: Well, right now he's actually the park's um, PR director, so he sells in public relations. So he's gone way past just uh, handling the park's archives. So I would love to. Well, even though the book is finished, it's. I always tell everybody it's never finished in my heart. Um, I want. I want to keep researching Ida Wild. I'm hoping that now the book is published. It's out there in the public. People are becoming more aware of it. Maybe the audience who will see this uh, this program. Um, they had no idea there was a book on Idlewild. So I'm really hoping it will uh, uncover maybe that scrapbook of photos that's sitting in somebody's attic with really awesome pictures that nobody's ever seen before. So I, I'm, I'm hoping to keep researching the park for as, as long as I can. Um, to me, it's going to be a lifelong project. But one of the things I would like to do with the park in the future is, is help them digitize their archives and organize it. Um, because it, it's been a while since I think Jeff has, has really, uh, since he first um, organized the collection there.
1: So for people who don't know Idlewild, where is it? And if you go there, what's it like?
0: Well, Idlewild is located in Ligonier Township, Westmoreland County, uh, in the middle of the beautiful Ligonier Valley, the Laurel Highlands uh, region of western Pennsylvania. Um, it's easily accessible from the Pennsylvania Turnpike. You can get off Donegal. Um, Shoot up 7-Eleven and then down Route 30. Um, You can access it from Route 30. Um, And it's, it's interesting that now, in modern times, people are getting to Idlewild on the highway in automobiles because Idlewild started out as a railroad park. And if people did not come to the park on foot or by wagon or horseback. They came on the train, either the Ligonier Valley Railroad or the Pennsylvania Railroad. So I find that pretty pretty fascinating that it, it started out as a railroad park and now that the railroad's gone, it's, it's um, getting a lot of Lincoln Highway Route 30 traffic.
1: How big is it right now?
0: Uh, the park, well, the actual uh, land, the estate that it's on, um, at least 400 acres, but the park itself is smaller than that, maybe a couple hundred, because uh, it's a very hilly area, so the park's mostly uh, mostly built on, on a flat portion, portion Do you have of a favorite
1: it. ride there?
0: I'm very partial to the two Philadelphia Toboggan Company rides. Uh, the company is actually now called Philadelphia Toboggan Coasters but um, there's two rides that the company built that are, that are at Idlewild today. The first one is a beautiful three-row carousel, um, number, th- number 83. It was one of the last wooden carousels that PTC actually built. It was built and assembled in 1930 during the Depression. Um, they used the best of their existing stock uh, to build the carousel. Uh, so that's why it has three lead horses. Normally carousels only have one lead horse. It's usually the most ornate. Um, these horses have a, uh, a crest with the PTC initials on it. Uh, so I'm very partial to that ride. It's, it's also unique because it has two musical devices. It has a Wurlitzer Calliola and that's an air operated Calliope and it also has a Wurlitzer number 103 band organ. And but that that band organ is actually contained behind an artisan factories band organ facade. So I I have many questions left unanswered um, from my research. And that's that's one on the list. Uh, why and when was the original artisan organ removed and the world and replaced by a Wurlitzer. So. But that's that's a pretty unique. How thing. far back
1: does this uh, carousel go? Uh,
0: 1930. Um, it actually spent that first season in Atlantic City, and not Adderwild. Um It it was located in a building um, at Connecticut Avenue and the Boardwalk for the season, and the proprietor of the of the building uh, went bankrupt, and then PTC had to find a new location. And I, I go into kind of detail on how that how that process happened in the book, and um, just a little bit of background uh, about the carousel's life in Atlantic City, which I'd still like to delve into a bit more, but um, yes, the carousel spent one season in in Atlantic City, and then it moved to Idlewild in 1931, where it's been ever since.
1: How do they keep it in good shape after 80 years? I mean, it's outdoors, it's in in the elements? It's covered
0: by a pavilion. But uh, there was a restoration done in the mid-'80s to it, and hopefully um, at some point it'll be restored again.
1: What's your other favorite ride?
0: Uh, PTC's roller coaster. Um, uh, coaster number 101. That coaster is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year. Uh, it debuted in 1938. Um, it's actually a junior coaster, a kiddie coaster, but uh, from the beginning, uh, the park couldn't keep adults off of it, so both adults and kids have, have ridden it for 80 years. Um, it's unique because it was, um, it was built on a hillside, so um, the designer, Herbert P. Schmeck, he was an engineer um, at PTC and eventually went on to become company president. He designed it using uh, an existing hill at the park, so the outbound leg, after, after the coaster train goes up the lift hill, it, the outbound leg goes on top of the hill and then swoops down and comes back along the bottom of the, of the hill to the, to the station. Um, so he used the existing topography at the park to build the coast around it. And there's been a long-standing local legend that um, the builders used timber from Idlewild Park, trees from from the park itself to build it, um, and then there was supposedly a sawmill built on site to process it. And I searched everywhere for photographs or any kind of invoice, any kind of records in the archives. Um, I even went to Philadelphia Toboggan Coasters out outside Philadelphia um, to their archives to see if they had any record of it, and I couldn't find anything um, until I started checking. Um, Old Latrobe Bulletin issues, the paper that I that I string for, and I could count on the Latrobe Bulletin to have some information on that. So they did report um, on on the coaster coming to Idlewild and being built using uh, oak trees from the property, and that there was in fact a sawmill. So that's I think a pretty unique thing using using the park's own materials to build to build a ride.
1: Now one of the things you write about in, in here, those, those two rides we just talked about, and a couple other rides were. Added in the 1930s, which was the middle of the depression, mm-hmm. so the park was doing okay during the depression,
0: right? Um, which is amazing when you think about other smaller parks, trolley parks that that closed, um, maybe by World War One they closed, the depression they closed, or or even maybe they survived uh, until World War Two, but then that caused them to close. But um, it's it's pretty unique that Idaho was able to withstand. Um, what was going, o- going on in the country at that time. Um, I think because the Mellon family was involved, um, they also had very good management with C.C. Uh, McDonald. Um, he was an in- uh, amusement park industry veteran. He owned uh, Rock Springs Park in Chester, West Virginia. Uh, he and his wife, Grace McDonald they also managed other amusement parks uh, throughout the country, so he came with a bit of experience. Um, So, I would chalk that success up to, you know, having good financial backing uh, with with the Mellon family, Ligonier Valley Railroad, um, having strong management. And the group picnic business was always the park's bread and butter. Um, They attracted uh, church denominations, every denomination you can think of, um, union picnics, company picnics, some of the biggest names in in western Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Westinghouse, Hines, Alcoa. um, You you
1: say in the book that there were African-American picnics and also Ku Klux Klan picnics.
0: Yes, yes. Um, I didn't find any evidence that Idlewild was, had ever been officially segregated. I'm sure there were, you know, there was some implied segregation, maybe Certain groups would not come to the picnic, would not come to the park on certain days, um, but then there were there were um, black specific picnics um, in the in the early days, and then that was probably the most surprising thing that I found out about the park was that in uh, 1924 and 1925 um, in September of those years, the Ku Klux Klan chapters from Ligonier and Latrobe had um, picnics. Um, those were the only two picnics that I found that they hosted at Idyllwild. Um They invited uh, groups from other states to come to the gatherings. Um, I did it, it really did surprise me because when you think of amusement parks you don't think of that kind of group going there. Um, but I did end up reading a book by John Craig um, on the, the Ku Klux Klan in western Pennsylvania.
1: He was um, on this program.
0: Oh interesting. So I, I I read his book just to get an understanding of the context. You know, I I was not aware that KKK was that active in this country in the 20s, but they really were. And they were very active in western Pennsylvania. And um, not just Ligonier, it was Scottsdale, Indiana, Pittsburgh. So that, I understood those picnics better by understanding how active that group was in Pennsylvania during that time.
1: How did it get started in the first place? I mean, whose idea was it?
0: Well, um, Idlewild's history is intertwined with the history of the Ligonier Valley Railroad. And that is that was a short-line railroad that connected Ligonier with La Trobe. That, La Trobe. Was owned, <laughs> that,
1: that was owned by the Mellons? Uh,
0: yes, yes. Um, uh, in the beginning, um, well, the Pennsylvania Railroad came through uh, La Trobe in 1852. And civic and business leaders and then Ligonier thought, hey, you passed us by, we need to figure out some way to connect our town to the outside world. So they tried for 25 years to get this railroad built. And it wasn't until the 1870s when they got um, Judge Thomas Mellon involved um, that they were successful. He purchased the unfinished uh, line, um, completed it, You know, there were some rights-of-ways that that had been procured and some of the line was graded, but um, he purchased it, got uh, four of his sons to be involved in the company in various business aspects, and they completed it, and it was up and running by the end of 1877. Um, Within those first few months after the railroad was built, um, somebody in the Mellon family came up with the idea to boost uh, passenger business on the line by creating a scenic picnic grove. I haven't come across any definitive information as to who exactly, um, who exactly came up with that idea. Um, it could have been Richard Beatty Mellon. He was very active in the business. He loved the outdoors. Um, uh, James Mellon's book, The Judge, that came out in 2011. Um, I believe he has a footnote in there that, that implies um, R.B. Mellon had a hand in that, so, and um, RB was actually the first manager of Idlewild, so um, I'd love to prove someday that he came up with the idea, but somebody in the Mellon family thought, okay, you know, we have a freight business, but let's get passengers here. Um, People from Latrobe, Greensburg, nearby communities, uh, and also as far as Pittsburgh, our friends and family could come up and enjoy this beautiful Ligonier Valley, away from the grime and the soot uh, of the city, the daily cares, come up and enjoy the forest, the Loyal Hannah Creek, um, the fresh country air. So um, they approached, Judge Thomas Mellon approached um, one of the landowners um, of a parcel of land that the Ligonier Valley Railroad line went through. Um, He approached Attorney William Darlington of Pittsburgh. But actually, I'd love to point out the fact that William's wife, Mary Darlington, Mary Carson O'Hara Darlington, actually legally owned the land. And I think that gets passed by and is not very well known, but she actually legally owned the land. And it's interesting how she ended up with it through her family. Um, But the judge wrote to, William Darlington asking for permission to to use the land, to lease the land, and there's a famous letter dated May 1st, 1878, where Darlington gives the Ligonier Valley Railroad permission to use use part of his land, part of Mary's land, um, for picnic purposes or pleasure grounds. And there's a stipulation not to cut or injure any trees, which, since then i think the park general all the owners have generally followed that precept um, i've come across and it, there's an interesting picture in the book of uh... one of the early buildings that that was built there one of the picnic pavilions and you could see that the a tree trunk goes right through the roof overhang so they, they truly built around the trees um... now obviously you know if 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 the park wanted to do a significant development um or, you know, there were trees that were sickly or dying, they would have to remove them, but they also planted new trees to, to make up for that. So, but going back to Darlington and, and the melons, um, so as of May 1st, 1878 was when Ottawa was officially established, and um, from 18, late 1870s through 1930, it was basically a scenic picnic grove, um, few amenities, um, some shelters, uh, uh, some man-made lakes were added, um, uh, the first amusement ride was added, um, a steam-driven merry-go-round, but and, and some concessions, some refreshment stands, but other, th- other than that, it, it wasn't until the 30s when the McDonald family got involved and the, the Ligonier Valley Railroad and the Mellon family set up. Uh, a management partnership that it transi- transitioned into more of a traditional amusement park.
1: What did they do for water and bathrooms in those early days?
0: That I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> there were some early bathrooms, but I haven't come across any, um, any any plumbing schematics on that, but I'm sure it was was pretty, pretty primitive.
1: Where did the name Idlewild come from?
0: Um, that I'm still trying to figure out as well. Um, to me it it seems like it was a very brilliant marketing endeavor by the Mellon family. Um, when when I read through uh, William Darlington's existing diaries, you know, his day to day business, what the weather you know, he would record the weather and what he was doing that day, he would record meetings. Um, anytime he would mention going to Ligeneer um, or going to that property, it was the much more former, the much more tracked. It was rarely Idlewild and, and Any any of the rare instances I saw Idlewild was after the park was established. Um, Now Idlewild was a pretty pretty common name for um, other. There were other parks. There were other homesteads. Um, Idlewild was a brand of Kentucky flour. It was a brand of uh, tobacco. Um, I believe there was an Idlewild in Sharon, PA. There was um, there's an Idlewild in I think Reno, Nevada, um, and even later on, after I mean, J- the JFK Airport started out as Idlewild, so it's been in culture for quite a while. Um, John Boucher's history on Westmoreland County, um, I believe it's from 1918. He he says that Idlewild was named after Nathaniel Parker Willis's estate um, on the Hudson River in Tarrytown, New York. And N.P. Willis was a very sentimental writer, um, uh, popular during the 1850s. Um, he wrote a work on improvements to his estate, Idlewild. And that was published in Pittsburgh papers, excerpts from it. So it's possible that one of the melons saw that and thought it was a beautiful name and very, very apt for this picnic round where you truly could idle in the wild.
1: You say in your book, Idlewild is reputed to be the setting of the famous friendly fire incident that occurred in 1758 when a young Colonel George Washington nearly lost his life by jumping between two companies of the Virginia militia that collided at dusk near Fort Ligonier. Mm -hmm. Did you have fun digging into the distant past of that plot of land?
0: Oh, yes. I wish I could have proven that George Washington was almost killed at Idlewild, Mm -hmm. and the park has even used that, you know, in the 30s there was a, a really neat. Um, advertisement. I think it. I think it might have been for the, swim, the swimming pool after it came out in because it was it debuted in 1932 that they really did promote Idlewild as that the location for you know that George Washington's near death experience. But um, the Forbes Road um, did not go past Idlewild. It was south of it along Youngstown Ridge Road. So um, Idlewild is about three miles past three miles uh, west of. Uh, fort Ligonier and in George Washington's remarks which the Fort Ligonier Museum has um, he writes that this incident happened about 2 miles so um, although we don't know exactly where this incident happened and I know the fort has has continued research into that um, it's very it's highly unlikely that it that it happened at Idlewild
1: <laughs> So if we're back in the 1880s 1890s mm-hmm. can you describe a day at the park I mean you you get up and you catch the train. Mm-hmm. Where where would you catch the train?
0: Uh, you could catch the train as as far away as Pittsburgh. Um, up until I think 1882 is when the when the Lehigh Valley Railroad um, transitioned from being narrow gauge to standard gauge. So before that, if you came from Pittsburgh or maybe you caught the PRR at Greensburg. When you got to La Trobe, you had to get off and transfer over to the smaller line. Um, but after 1882, you can just go straight on into the park. Um, so you would get onto the train with your family and your picnic baskets um, and travel the, from Latrobe travel about 11, well, 11 miles all the way to the end of it. So but probably more like seven miles uh, to Idlewild.
1: Do they charge admission to the park?
0: Not at that time. Um, the railroad made the, mon- the The park made money from the railroad fare, or the concessions that they had. There was a photographs concession. Um, they had three man-made lakes. One of them, one of them had rowboats. The other one had um, two vapor launches, a swan boat, and then at, then later they had a motor launch. So they would um, they would make money from rides on those too.
1: How popular was it?
0: I think pretty popular. Um, I'm trying to think. One, the Ligonier Valley Railroad Museum has um, two existing books, um, letterpress books, uh, copies of correspondence that Superintendent George Sennith. and they'll be very proud that I finally learned how to pronounce his name, Senith, S-E-N-F-T, it's a very interesting name. Um, they have copies of his course, daily correspondence, ordering tickets, ordering parts, um, booking picnics, you know, corresponding with like the passenger agents with the PRR um, from like 18, part of 1892 through early 1898. And um, that includes um, correspondence with manufacturers of uh, the swan boat that they bought and um, the vapor launch and he does report that um, that it it gave them splendid satisfaction it gave the company splendid satisfaction and um, i believe there's a little bit about how you know how many rides that they that they did maybe not maybe not anything about how much money they made but it sounds that it was pretty pretty successful and, and went over pretty well with not only the public, but the management there.
1: You say here in 1891, they had a pavilion that sat on top of a natural amphitheater, a sloping hill estimated to accommodate 20,000 picnickers.
0: Right, right, which seems, I don't, it seems crazy to me because I was I was at the park on, I think a couple weekends ago, July 14th, and that was probably the biggest day that they had so far this year. There were a couple big group picnics and I think they said about 8,000 people were there and the place was crowded. Now granted it's much different today, there's more buildings and the hill isn't, it's cut back a little bit but I mean I I can't imagine seeing that amount of people there but when you look at some of the uh, pictures from you know the 30s when there's free acts entertaining the trapeze artists and um, um, trapeze artists the human cannonball um, circus acts and you see just how crowded the hill was and how how packed the midway was I mean certainly they could they could fit thousands and thousands of people
1: you mentioned C.C. McDonald mm-hmm. how significant is he where does he come into the picture
0: um, he comes in uh, Clinton Charles McDonald he comes in uh, 1931 um, the Leer Valley Railroad had purchased the park and the land from the Darlington heirs in 1923 and now that they owned it instead of leasing it um, I I assume that you know their mindset became okay now now we can develop it, you know, on a limited basis, you know, let's not go too crazy, but um, by the end of that decade, it seems that they were ready to add more rides, um, entertainment, refreshment stands, that sort of thing, and and make it into more of a traditional amusement park. So, uh, the railroad established a subsidiary company, uh, Idlewild Management Company, and actually, in between, even between those, there was the Idlewild Company and then the Wild Management Company. So there was a separation between the parent company, the railroad that owned all the land, and then the management company that was going to handle the day-to-day business. So they set up the Wild Management Company as a partnership um, uh, and brought in C.C. McDonald. He had 49% of the stock. The railroad, the Mellon family had the other 51%. And um, he, as I mentioned before, he was an amusement park veteran. Um, so there
1: were other amusement parks around at the time, and this, this early.
0: Uh, yes, there were there were quite a few trolley parks: uh, Oakford Park and Jeanette, um, Olympia Park and McKeesport, Sports, uh, Kennywood Park, probably the most well known in West Mifflin. That started as a, a streetcar or trolley park. So Idaho was quite different in that it was a railroad park, but the origins were still pretty similar to boost, passenger business on these transportation lines.
1: So they started charging per ride? It was There wasn't a, a one-ticket admission
0: Correct. price? Correct. Correct. You had to buy uh, ticket, bu- ticket bu- books, and uh, so each ride cost a certain amount of tickets.
1: I read, uh, getting back to the carousel, which is still there, you say they bought it, um, was it the 1932 season they installed it, and they bought it for $7,250 mm-hmm. cash
0: yeah what they it was a concession in 1931 and and 1932 and then after the season closed i think it was in october that they arranged to actually purchase it from PTC so for a pretty i think they got a pretty good deal but i imagine Philadelphia Toboggan Company was was per, you know hurting in the depression and and you know any any money because they paid in cash was, so, was, uh, I
1: still have good. to ask how they did so well during the Depression, because you, you have also here one of the biggest employee picnics was Westinghouse Airbreak. They set a new daily record of thirty-five to 40,000 people at right. Idlewild during its annual picnic, and uh, the park's entrance gates closed early after all parking spaces were filled, and traffic became gridlocked on Route 30 for several miles, and this is in the middle of the Depression.
0: Right. It's, a, it's amazing. I, I think that that shows how loved how enjoyed Idlewild was. You know, it it was very the scenery, the peaceful country aesthetic there, you know, with the trees and and the 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 ridges and and the Loyal Hannah running through. Um, but it it is amazing that people were able to save up in order to to spend a day at the park. But it you know, you You could still bring, as you could do today, you know, even though there's refreshment stands, popcorn, root beer, cotton candy, peanuts, you could still bring a picnic basket. The park welcomes, you know, welcomes you to bring in your own food and and beverages, so I have to imagine that helped as well, and, um, you know, group picnics also got special rates on on the railroad, so I'm sure that helped too.
1: Did the park have economic ups and downs over the years, or was it always... Pretty solid business.
0: I think it did have ups and downs. Um, it, it actually had to close for two full seasons, and then part of a third during World War II because, um, you know, gas rationing, rubber rationing. You know, the people were being sent off to war. They didn't have that audience. You know, they didn't have the the patrons. Um, so it, it closed in 1943, 1944. And then it opened on a limited basis in 1945 originally, and then and then eventually went back to full time full time operation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't have it wasn't fully staffed. Um, it didn't have it had practically no entertainment. So it wasn't until 1946 that they could really um, clean up the park and improve it and and find themselves you know in an economic position to. To reopen there's a
1: ride you write about that's no longer there called the rumpus
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, what is that what was
0: that it? that was a dark ride and i like to say you know think of kennywood's old mill but um on dry land instead of on water it was a dark ride where people sat in two-seater cars and they went they, which followed a um a winding electric track through the dark, and every, every so often, um, something spooky would pop up. Um, there would be spools of thread hanging from the ceiling um, that would tickle you, and it, would me- it was meant to feel like snakes were dangling from the ceiling. Skeletons would pop out. So, um, gr- a great opportunity for couples to smooch in the dark, and you know, for little kids to get scared. So that, that was a very interesting ride that I would love to find out a little bit more about.
1: You have other rides that really intrigue you that aren't there anymore.
0: Um, the Custer cars; um, those came in the 30s, um, and they were sold when the park closed in the 40s. I have not come across any pictures of those, so if anybody out there has a picture, please please let me know. Um, the Dangler was a short-lived ride um, in the 30s. I think only three seasons: 35, 36, and 37. Um, It looks like a a miniature version of the Wave Swinger, you know, dangling dangling swings um, that just revolved in a circle. Um, I have one picture in the book I was able to find. Um, uh, It's not great, but at least it's something. It it documents the ride that that was there and that came from Germany so that that was pretty pretty interesting Um, to think you know with all the ride manufacturers in the United States, you know, how did this ride how did they decide to bring something over that was from Germany? Um, so those are two unique rides I'd, I'd love to learn a bit, bit more about and see some pictures of. Um, the rumpus, certainly, and I'm always looking for new information on the carousel and, and roller coaster. And um, I did uh, contact the Atlantic City Library for research help, but um, at some point I'm, I'm planning on, on doing a trip to Atlantic City to see, see if I could find anything on the the carousel's first year there.
1: When you go to an amusement park today, do you act differently than you did before you got into this?
0: Hmm. I think so. I think so. You know, originally when I first started researching the park, and I started out by going to Idlewild's archives, I figured that's that's the source I'm going to start with. Um, You know, I dug into all of the picnic programs, brochures, newspaper articles, surveys and blueprints that they had. Um, but I felt really weird being there myself, just like this lone person wandering around like taking pictures of rides and riding on the rides by, my, by myself. Oh, but, you got to do that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But you know, after, after three years, I'm comfortable just kind of plopping down on a picnic bench with my laptop and I feel very, very at home at Idlewild.
1: I want to ask you about this. You say in your bio, uh, your writing projects focus on Western Pennsylvania history with the goal of enlightening readers about forgotten and obscure regional history. How often do you come across something that you want to call people up or poke them and say, hey, listen to this?
0: Hmm. Um, hmm. That's a tricky question to answer because the, the last three, four years, it's all been Idlewild to me. So that's mm. that's all I've been focusing on. But you know, like the uh, finding out the KKK were at ottawa that really intrigues me. I'd love to research more about that group's presence in Westmoreland County because I did not realize, you know, that their philosophy, their discrimination was not just about, they, they just didn't discriminate against black. They discriminated against Catholics, and Jews, and immigrants, and, you know, it makes me think of my family, my Polish-Croatian family, they came over, um, my my grandparents were first generation um, Americans, so thinking about this group being active at a time when my great grandparents were coming over, you know, would they have been, you know, discriminated against by? by this group. Well, so some people who but, are at the park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you don't think about, you know, um, a rural place having, um, you would think more the KKK would be more active in an urban setting and not rural, but they were very active in Ligonier and other rural Western Pennsylvania communities. So that really intrigues me. I'd love to understand more about it. Um, so that was one kind of obscure topic that came up. In, in my Idlewild research that I didn't expect.
1: When uh, the park opened after World War II, did, did it change in any way? Was there, was there some new phase that they entered into in the, uh, the 40s and 50s? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it seemed like they were ready to really keep developing, keep building the park. Um, after a few years being, being closed down, um, it was in you know, kind of a, a rundown condition. It, it needed to be spruced up. So they started adding um, um, some new new rowboats. Um, they redid some refreshment stands and equipment um, in '47. They added a caterpillar ride. That was the same same year that the Rumpus ride burned, unfortunately. So that was probably like the one big big setback during that time. But um, by the 1950s, you, you're start, you're starting to see more significant development, I think. Um, there was there had always been kitty rides at Idlewild since 1931. In 1941, there was a smaller kitty land set up in the West Plaza area near where the coaster is. Um, it only had a few rides, but in 1951, those rides were moved over um, closer to the creek where the wildmost Wild Mouse Coaster is today, and that's the location that I think a lot of people will fondly remember as as Kittyland. Um, they added more kitty rides there, um, with the big smiling clown sign at the at the entrance that I that I think a lot of people will be very sentimental about. Um, so besides that, at the park they also um, established Storybook Forest next door. Now it was owned by the McDonald family. But it was separate from Idlewild. It had its own separate board of directors. Um, but still the McDonald's were on the board of directors. Um, it was the brainchild of Arthur Jennings. He was um, by, by day, he was an industrial model builder for the Elliott Company in Jeanette. But by night he was a traveling entertainer, juggler, magician. Um, he was hired by the park to be a free act originally. And then he established a friendship, a business relationship with CeCe McDonald. McDonald um, asked him if he would consider creating some kind of mascot, a clown mascot for Wild. And then Happy Days was born. Um, so for, uh, during the 1950s, um, Mr. Jennings uh, dressed up as Happy Days. He would visit schools during the off season. Um, to get everybody excited about what's new at Idyllwild this year. He would walk around the park during the day talking to people, getting, um, getting a feel for what they liked about the park, what, what the park could, have, could improve. And then he came up with this idea for, for a park based on emotion rather than motion. Um, a walk through Children's Park, it, everything was built on a smaller scale for kids rather than adults. Um, So he didn't really have any success in, um, you know, bringing his idea to other people until he talked to Mr. McDonald and the McDonald family made it happen. So 1956 is when Storybook Forest uh, officially opened um, just east of Idlewild Park.
1: Is that still there? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Still there. Yep. Uh, Celebrated its 60th anniversary in 2016.
1: How long did the railroad run?
0: Uh, the last run was August thirty first, uh, nineteen fifty two, so seventy-five years.
1: Replaced by the car.
0: Oh yes. Mm-hmm. But at that point, you know, the the railroad started Idawild. Idawild would not have been here if it wasn't for the Mellon family and the Ligander Valley Railroad, but at that time it stood on its own. You know, it did the you know, industry was declining. Um People were taking the bus, people were taking the car to Idaho, they they weren't taking the train. So as the freight business, the passenger business dwindled, it was just time to say goodbye to the railroad and...
1: They opened a zoo at some point?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a small zoo um, starting in 1931. Um, The McDonald family brought in bears, monkeys, raccoons, Um, but there was more of a traditional zoo established in 1965, Frontier Safari Land, And other people might recognize it as Frontier Zoo, because um, it, it, the name changed um, after a few years. But that was there until the late 80s. So that, that was located on the south side of the creek behind where Daniel Tiger's neighborhood is now. And it had North, North American animals, domest, um, domestic animals, um, some exotic animals, a petting zoo. So more of a traditional type of zoo.
1: You mentioned free shows that they had, and there's one. You say unique acts included Japanese high diver B. Kyle in the 1930s. For her night performance, she doused her clothes with gasoline and set herself on fire before leaping from a 110-foot ladder into a water tank.
0: Mm-hmm. Pretty showy. Yes. I would love to get in a time machine and go back and see that. <laughs> I mean, can you could you imagine somebody doing that today? <laughs>
1: What other kinds of acts would they have? The free concerts and shows
0: like that. Um, uh, trapeze, high wire acts, uh, the human cannonball. Um, Madalina uh, Zacchini. Um, she was part of the Zacchini cannonball act, and I believe they came up with that act originally. She performed at Idlewild. Um, there was, I think, I mentioned Oscar Babcock. He, I think, he he had a motorcycle stunt um, where he rode his motorcycle and it went upside down in a loop. Um, Bob Fisher's famous Fearless Flyers were um, a long-standing act there. Um, and they were all
1: free to see? Mm-hmm. And yeah, y- but no s- cost.
0: Yeah, no additional cost to the patrons.
1: You have a picture of Minnie Pearl in there, mm-hmm. too, who got famous for being on Hee Haw.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was there for their country music spectacular. Every Labor Day they would have a big country show. So she was there uh, three times.
1: How long did the McDonald family control things?
0: Um, so they came to the park in 1931. Um, I believe it was in 1950 when they bought out the uh, Mellon family share of the Ottawa management Company, because Ottawa management company had bought the land from um, the Leganner Valley Railroad. So 1950, they completely owned the park. And then in 1983, uh, they decided, well, the next generation of the family is not really interested in the amusement park industry, which you know that's which is fine. Um, so it's just time to put a period on what you know our involvement in this this great amusement park, and um, eventually Kenny Kennywood bought it. So two competing parks, somewhat competing parks. Um, I'm not really sure how much they they competed because they are so different from each other, but to one sort of competing parks became sister parks. When
1: World War II ended, uh, one of the things the amusement parks had to compete with was television. Did they do things to ramp up the, the experience to compete with television or other
0: I think bringing tele- local television stars to the park. You know, Paul Shannon um, would come and... Uh, and do some signings at Storybook Forest. Um, and he was, I believe he was a good friend of Dick McDonald's, so they would get local, local uh, television stars to come and do appearances at the park, radio, radio DJs from KDKA um, and Greensburg stations would come to do um, like teenage, uh, teenage dances, you know, to get, get that um, demographic interested in coming to Idlewild for record hops.
1: Now it's now called Idlewild Park and Soak Zone?
0: Mm-hmm. WHEN DID
1: THEY START ADDING THE WATER RIDES?
0: Um, 1985. SO the, THERE WAS ALWAYS A POOL THERE SINCE 1932. Um, I THINK THERE WAS SOME TALK IN THE, in the LATER YEARS, uh, THE LAST YEARS, THAT THE MCDONALD FAMILY HAD THE PARK of, OF PUTTING IN SOME KIND OF WATER SLIDE, BUT IT WASN'T UNTIL KENNYWOOD GOT INVOLVED. Uh, 1985, THEY PUT IN THE FIRST WATER SLIDES, AND THEN GRADUALLY, YOU KNOW, EVERY FEW YEARS THEY ADDED BODY SLIDES, RAFT SLIDES, A LITTLE KIDS AREA. So, um, it started out as the H2O Zone, and then um, eventually was renamed Dr. Hydro Soak Zone, and then that name was condensed into Soak Zone, and now the whole park is uh, branded as Idlewild and Soak Zone because the water park could almost stand on its own. It's, it's so big, and it's, uh, you could spend a day just there. So that was in the 2000s, I think.
1: How often have they been adding new rides and replacing old rides over the years?
0: Um, I don't think they have added anything in the last few years, which means there's probably some things on the drawing board, so everybody should stay tuned, um, especially when you see what's going on at at Kennywood and um, the other sister parks um, that the company owns. So I would not be surprised if Um, Idlewild added added some new things in the next couple seasons but um, probably yeah they they really haven't added any major rides in the last few years they did um, probably the most significant thing would be um, transitioning the Mr. Rogers neighborhood of make-believe trolley ride into Daniel Tigers neighborhood because I grew up with Mr. Rogers. A lot of people in Western Pennsylvania and beyond grew up with Mr. Rogers, and we love him and we miss him. But kids today love Daniel Tiger. That's who they see on TV every day. They're excited to see him when they come to the park. Um, so it was just a natural thing to, um, in 2015 they, they redid the ride, and you know it's the same trolley ride. You're still getting on that same big right, red trolley. You're going through the neighborhood of make-believe, but now you're just seeing different characters. So that was a way to, to keep the integrity and the, the concept behind Fred Rogers' original, um, original ride, because he was involved every step of the way, but also make it relevant for today's generations. So they redid that ride in 2015. And then 2016, when Storybook Forest was celebrating its 60th anniversary, they built a new enchanted castle. That was one of the original um, units there in the beginning and um, it was removed in 1997. It had been out in the elements for 40 years and they were going to try and move it and try and save it, put it in a different location because they needed to um, expand the entranceway and it was just too far gone to be saved but um, management did tell the papers at the time, you know, maybe someday we can bring it back and it took 20 years but and you know, finally, finally, they did bring it back. So that that came in 2016, along with a new uh, live character named Princess Lily.
1: Who owns the park today?
0: Um, the company's name translates to Festival Fun Parks. Um, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it because <laughs> I'll I'll screw it up. But uh, their American subsidiary um, that manages all of the um, parks in the United States uh, is Palace Entertainment. So they own. Um, at Kennywood, Sandcastle, a variety of other parks, um, not just in Pennsylvania, but but across the company, and they're they're an international company.
1: Did anything change when it went from being kind of a family-owned operation to being a corporation-owned operation?
0: Um, I don't think a lot. I mean, the I'm sure the public um, wishes that it was still family-owned because that's a very nostalgic, sentimental. You know, idea to have. And it's, you know, when when a corporation owns multiple parks, I have to imagine there's a lot of difficult decisions. There's a lot, we don't, we as the public don't know what goes on behind the scenes um, when you're managing one park, let alone multiple parks. Um, but, you know, even when Kenny would, would bought Idlewild. Um, you know, people were nervous that they were going to come in and take out all the trees and spread asphalt everywhere and bring in these giant thrill rides, you know, that, that were just did not fit in this picturesque, scenic, um, family-friendly atmosphere. Um, but that was not the case. They said, this is, this is what makes Idawild so unique. We're not going to destroy that and um that's what Pal- that's what palace entertainment is um, continuing to do today adhere to that same philosophy you know this is we need to upgrade things we need to develop things obviously you know we we want to keep the park relevant we want to keep people coming here but we don't want to destroy um, the the foundation of it you know it's it's been a scenic picnic ground for 140 years, 2018's it's 140th anniversary, and at heart it's still a scenic picnic ground. At heart it's still a railroad park.
1: When you go there, do you ever go there just for fun or are you always kind of working?
0: I did, the the time I went there for, uh, um, when it was really busy with 8,000 people there, that was for fun, that was for fun. Uh, My boyfriend and I went and brought his uh, daughter and son-in-law and grandson for his grandson's first, first trip to Idlewild, so.
1: If someone has never been there, do uh, you have any advice for them?
0: I, I would say don't just go once, get a season pass because actually, if you get a season pass, that's pretty, you go, you go to the park twice in a season and you've already paid for it, so that's, that's a pretty good thing to do. Um, um, since you have the traditional park with the rides, the old Idlewild section, um, and you have the Wild West Town Hoot and Holler. And you have Jump the Jungle where you can where kids and adults can climb on different jungle gym type type uh, attractions there. And you have Story Forest that you could walk through and Kittyland. Land. Um, that's that's one day in and of itself. And then you can spend another day just at Soak Zone, you know, on a hot day in the middle of summer. Can go cool off at Soak Zone. so that's that's a day in and of itself. What's and the
1: wildest ride they have?
0: Probably the Wild Mouse. That's that's the uh, second roller coaster that that Idlewild has. Um, it's a steel coaster. It is like those you know traditional Wild Mouse coasters. Um, it does whip you around. Um, that was added in 1993, so it's it's not as old as Roller Coaster, but it's it's still got quite a few years under its belt there. But that's. I would think that's the wildest ride there. It whips you around pretty good.
1: Do you have an idea of the next amusement park you're gonna write a book about?
0: Ooh. Um, I don't know how to top Idlewild. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know Brian bucko has been working on Kennywood. Um, you know, I, I am fascinated by the trolley parks of this region. Um, And those are amusement
1: parks like this one, but you took a like a town trolley to get there?
0: Mm -hmm. So it might be kind of neat to do something um, on the forgotten trolley parks. Um, But I have a couple ideas for for other things. Um, The the Darlington family who owned the land when Idaho was established, they're very intriguing. Um, Mary and William Darlington were Great local uh, stewards of local history, very interested in Western Pennsylvania history, amassed a huge collection of historical works, letters signed by um, famous people. They had very extensive art collection. Uh, William translated Christopher um, Gist's journals. Mary wrote her own works. Um, so, uh, and they're connected to uh, the O'Hara families, the Denny families, uh, names that are familiar with. You know, Pittsburgh history as well. So I'd like to dig in deep into their history. Um, the one, one of their daughters, Edith, she was instrumental in saving the Fort Pitt blockhouse. So I'd like to maybe do something on them someday.
1: Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Jennifer Sopko. She is the author of this book, Idlewild History and Memories of Pennsylvania's Oldest Amusement Park. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.